Rogers Park. My name is Phil Adams. I serve as the pastor here at Park RP. And this week we are in the final verses of a series um, that we've been working through, working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this week we are in the very last chapter. We're in the very last uh, portion of verses. A few weeks ago, we looked at the climactic conclusion as to how the resurrection of Jesus Christ should alter our perspective, uh, the perspective on our lives and on time itself, whether we, we die or whether we are still alive. One day, Jesus is going to return and we will realize that all the chapters in this book where the opening chapters, the end, will really be the beginning. Then last week, John began to look at some of the closing pleasantries in 1 Corinthians. Paul, who, who wrote... First Corinthians in this final chapter begins making future plans and, and sending greetings. He's ending his letter in a very typical fashion. In the first half of chapter 16, we look at Paul's desire that the church in Corinth be a church of generosity for the sake of the care and the advancement of the gospel in Jerusalem. And now this week, we come to the end of the end of the end in verses 12 to 24. And Paul does something oh so normal. There, there's nothing complex about these verses. There's nothing deeply controversial or hard to grasp about the verses that we're going to look at today. It's kind of just regular life, how a typical letter might end. But Paul does set a great example for us today in these closing verses, because much of the controversies in life, they aren't about ideas that are complex or hard to grasp. Much of the controversies in our lives are simply about the oh-so-typical people that we interact with along life's way. Some of us love 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It was about uh, deep ideas. It was about life and death, about the concept of time and eternity. Through what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it, it's possible to seal ourselves off in the safety of theory and thought. And then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and it's like, oh, great people, like actual ones. Paul ends 1 Corinthians not by encouraging us to take what he has written and silo off in our own little thought bubbles, but to do the opposite, to take what he has written and allow it to impact how we live, how we interact with one another. And primarily, Paul closes 1 Corinthians ensuring that all of our theory lands the plane in love. So let's read our passage for today. Let's read our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to read verse 12. To verse 14. Actually, we're going to read verses 12 right down to verse 24. And it reads like this. Now concerning our Apollos, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts, were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every follow, fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 
our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray before we continue in this passage. God, we just come before you um, as we always do um, when we come to your word, God, with a, a sense of um, humility and dependency on you and um, an openness to your leading and to your spirit, God. Would you, so would you um, speak to us today? Would you lead us? Would you guide us, God? Um, we love you. We trust you. We trust your word that it is true, God. So would you um, sharpen us today? Would you align us um, with your will and your ways? Um, do that amongst us, uh, I pray today in your name. Amen. Have you ever just heard somebody's name and it makes you bristle? Or it makes your, your stomach sink a little? You're, you're okay, this person exists, it's just not helpful to be reminded. Our, our opening verse today has all the ingredients for the potential of those kinds of feelings to be stirred up. In verse 12, verse 12 reads, Now concerning our brother Apollos, the response to these words could very well have been on Paul's part, even though he wrote these words, yeah, what about him? Or, or yeah, what about her? What, what do you mean concerning our brother Apollos? You see, Paul and Apollos had an interesting relationship. They, they were contemporaries. They both were influential and impactful teachers and leaders within the early church. But rather than working hand in hand, they, they ministered independently, and yet at times they crossed paths. Apollos, for example, came from Alexandria in Egypt. When we first read of him, he, he was already an influential teacher. But interestingly, even though he was a teacher of the Old Testament, he hadn't yet come to fully understand the impact of the good news as to who Jesus was and what Jesus had accomplished through his death and resurrection. It was only in the city of Ephesus that Apollos came across a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. And this couple were good friends with the Apostle Paul. And this couple pulled Apollos aside and explained to him the whole truth of Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila very likely paused, passed on to Apollos what they themselves had been taught by Paul. And so with this new revelation and understanding of Christ, Apollos gave his life to planting churches and teaching God's word. And as he did, he became more and more esteemed and more and more influential within the early church. Some scholars actually think it was Apollos that wrote the book of Hebrews. And in Acts chapter 18, we read that he was an eloquent man. He was incredibly gifted. And at some point, Apollos arrived at the city of Corinth, where the Apostle Paul had planted a church. And we know that the church in Corinth, they know that we know that the church in Corinth loved Apollos. And they particularly loved Apollos' eloquence and his giftedness. He, he knew how to turn a phrase. And if you remember, the city of Corinth in general had an unhealthy infatuation with the prestigious and the elite. And this kind of culture had infiltrated into the church, so much so that their devotion to Apollos became an issue in need of correction. Apollos became a point of division within the church. And there's nothing that we can find that would point to Apollos having done anything wrong, but the church itself had started to pit Apollos and Paul against one another. You had Paul, the original church planter, on one side, who, if you remember, was not particularly eloquent at all, and he even worked an unprestigious day job, which they thought reflected very badly on them. Then the Apostle Paul 2.0 comes to town. He's all eloquent and learned, and people were like, yeah, we don't need Paul no more. In fact, let's not even listen to Paul anymore. We're now with Apollos. And if you remember, Paul addressed some of this before, calling for unity. 
pointing out that God had used both himself and Apollos to, to, to the same end of building up the church, that he and Apollos were on the same team. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you remember, Paul writes, What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave their growth. Paul was saying, stop pitting us against each other and see what God is doing through us both. And isn't this just the kind of relational dynamic between Paul and Apollos that is so easily prone in our own lives to be rife with jealousy and insecurity and bitterness and competitiveness when we feel pitted against somebody else? when we feel someone else's success might diminish our own, when we feel slighted or overlooked or overshadowed. Isn't that just when it's so easy for all kinds of negativity to form in us? Look what Paul says next, and this is why Paul sets a great example for us today. He writes, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now, he will come when he has opportunity. Apollos has clearly left Corinth and gone on to teach in new areas and new cities, but it's inferred here that the church that the church in Corinth wanted him to come back. Remember, they loved his leadership and his insight and his eloquence, and so they have asked Paul to send him back to Corinth. And this is the perfect chance for Paul to, to clamp down to allow competitiveness and jealousy to creep in and say, Enough about Apollos. Enough already. I, I've, I've already talked about this and now you're asking me I, if I, the second, second fiddle, can let him know you're looking for him. Oh yeah, sure, I'll just, I'll just let him know. Paul could easily have not passed on their request for Apollos to go and see them. He could have easily leveraged this request to clamp down his own and his own sense of ownership of the church in Corinth. But that's not what he says. That's not what he does. Paul says, I'm trying to get him to you. I'm working on it. In verse 13 and verse 14, we find two verses that can seem kind of out of place. Sandwiched between various greetings, we find these four pithy commands, and they are actually key to understanding how Paul is ending his letter. He writes, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And to summarize, each of these four imperatives are a call to courage, a call to be strong, a call to stand up tall, a call to dig deep. These are phrases that would be, would be very applicable on a battlefield. It's easy to read into them the idea of not backing down. Even the phrase, act like men, which isn't very PC anymore, was a call to both men and women to engage that inner stereotypical culturally aspirational idea of what it means to be immovable. But then immediately following in the next verse, in verse 14, Paul says something maybe at first glance that seems contradictory. He writes, let all that you do be done in love. And we are left trying to reconcile these two verses. One verse is seemingly relevant for, for a battlefield. The second seemingly more befitting in the context of a wedding or a tender moment nurturing a child. How do we understand the context of these verses where Paul is talking about people and the seeming contradiction between strength 
in verse 13 and love in verse 14. Let's first remind each other what Christian love is. And it's helpful. Paul has already given us somewhat of a definition in chapter 13, verse 1 or verse 4. Paul wrote, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And these words are beautiful until we remember that these beautiful words can't be beautiful unless they are enacted in moments or relationships that are far from an experience of what is beautiful. The very need for this articulation of love speaks to the very breakdown that occurs with the people that are around us. Love is patient, yeah, because some people are so freaking slow. <laughs> love does not envy, yeah, because I'm the one that deserves what they have. Love does not insist on its own way, yeah, sure, and what will happen if I don't insist? I'll be forgotten and I'll be walked over, insisting and powering up is the only way to truly exist. Love is not irritable, yeah, I get irritable because people are annoying. For every one of these statements that sound oh so nice, just off center, some of us are really struggling. Love bears all things, all things, like bullies and betrayal. Believes all things I'm meant to believe after all the times that I've been lied to, hopes, all things you mean hope after my history love endures all things rp some of you know this already so so well we reconcile the contradiction between strength and love in verse 13 and verse 14 by reminding ourselves that there is no contradiction between strength and love there is no contradiction between strength and kindness. There is no contradiction between strength and patience. There is absolutely no contradiction between strength and enduring love. Love is not for the faint-hearted. It is not for the weak. Love is only for the strong. There is no contradiction between verse 13 and verse 14 because maintaining our commitment to love is often our hardest battle. It is bitterness and envy and unforgiveness that are formed in weakness, but love takes grit and digging deep and standing strong. To be immovable in love is what verse 13 and verse 14 combined call us to. Call us to. Paul goes on then and gives three more examples of where we may need to dig deep and enact the strength of love. Here's the first. In verse 15, Paul brings up more people, the worst. He writes, Now I urge you, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Ikea, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So Paul here makes mention of a household, likely an extended family, and there isn't much we are told about them, but we know a couple of things. Firstly, we know that the church in Corinth knows them well. 
this household is made up of those who have been followers of Christ for a while and they have a great, they, 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 they have a degree of history and, and, and maturity and they were known to have devoted themselves in service to the saints. This household was of good reputation and they had roles that carried authority, likely in aligning teaching and doctrine. We don't, doctrine, we, we don't really know the details, but we know they carried authority because in verse, in verse 16, Paul says, I urge you be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer, as in be subject to them and others in authority like them. And this raises an interesting point, especially after Paul has just said, let all that you do be done in love. Because now that means he is saying, let your submitting to those in authority, to those in leadership be done in love. And if you're anything like me, you're slightly uncomfortable with words like submit. When I first came to Chicago, I, I worked for a professor at Moody, and one day he, he said to me, I never knew what the phrase the fighting Irish meant until I met you. <laughs> I don't know if he meant that as a compliment. I struggle with submitting to leadership as much as the next person or, or maybe more. But when we read the New Testament, the expectation of submitting to those in authority is clear. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. First Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13 says, Now we ask you to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. The Bible clearly teaches everyone is under the authority of Christ and the scriptures, the authority of Christ and the scriptures supersede all other human authorities. But then under the authority of Christ and the scriptures, there are those given the responsibility of overseeing the church. But we can be skeptical, right? For many reasons, the, the, the trust in pastors in the U.S. is, is not at an all-time high Trust in pastors in Chicago might be at an all-time low. And when any form of authority has hurt us, whether a parent or a boss or a member of clergy, we can be left weary of, a, of, of or wary of all forms. And I don't have a quick fix for this. And I don't have a fix, quick, a, a fix, a quick fix at all for this. I was thinking about this in relation to all of the governments around the world struggling to form where there exists deep, deep embedded bitterness and, and, and pain, often a lot of bloodshed. I was thinking about places like Sudan and, and Afghanistan, places where there's been years and years of instability. I was thinking about where I'm from, Northern Ireland, where, where political opinions are formed by the funerals people have attended of friends or family members that have been killed. How, how does a government form in these kinds of places? How are people meant to submit to a ruling party that has caused them so, so much pain? How can it not feel like a defeat to move forward, be even a betrayal of those that have been lost? What becomes clear in places like Sudan or Northern Ireland, if you find where peace is being formed, it's because somebody has realized that there are only so many conversations that can be had. 
there are only so many times history can be rehashed. At some point, somebody needs to be compelled, probably for a reason bigger than our own hurts, but compelled nonetheless to view submission to another, not as an act of defeat, but an act of love, an act of forgiveness, an act of peace, an act of belief and hope in a future that they believe to be possible. The New Testament calls us to allow our submission to those in authority, whether a boss or a pastor or a parent, to be an act of love, an act of kindness, an act of patience, an act of inner strength, maybe even at times an act of endurance. That's the first example of when we, we may need to enact the strength of love. The first example of enacting the strength of love was submitting to authority. The second and third are giving recognition and greeting one another with a holy kiss. So let's look at these next two examples. In verse 17, Paul mentions three people that it is suspected were in charge of delivering the correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth. They are likely going to return to Corinth with this letter that we are studying. And while they have been with Paul, he has been refreshed by them. He, he's enjoyed their company. Then he says, give recognition to such people. And then in verse 20, after sending greetings from Aquila and Prisca, Paul says, equally greet one another with a holy kiss. And if we look at these two examples at face value, the only part requiring deep inner strength may be giving people a holy kiss during our greet time. But really, what is so hard about giving recognition and, and greeting people in a contextually appropriate way. Rogers Park, this is the very end of First Corinthians and it has been a hard letter written into a hard situation. It's been a hard letter to teach because so much of the tone of this letter has been that of correction and rebuke. In chapter 1, favoritism being shown to Apollos is addressed. In chapter 2, an elitist attitude creeping into the church is addressed. In chapter 3, divisions in the church are addressed. In chapter 4, Paul had to argue to be respected as an apostle. In chapter 5, sexual immorality in the church is addressed. In chapter 6, Paul talks about lawsuits existing between Christians. In chapter 7, Paul teaches on celibacy and singleness and marriage. Nothing controversial there. In chapter 8, Paul takes aim at idolatry, and yes, we're going to go the whole way through. In chapter 9, again, elitism and snobbery is addressed. In chapter 10, again, idolatry. In chapter 11, people are getting drunk during communion. In chapter 12, Paul is seeking to reconcile our unity amidst diversity. We are one body in need of one another. In chapter 13, love. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Chapter 14, prophecy, tongues, male headship, head coverings, and orderly worship. That was a fun chapter. Chapter 15, Paul addresses their lack of belief in nothing big, just the resurrection. Church, I don't know the details of these three people on their way back to Corinth, and I don't know all the relational dynamics in the room as this letter was read out for the first time, but I can imagine a lot of people had a lot of thinking to do. 
and I'm pretty sure not everyone was feeling on the same page and that they were pa there were past hurts and there were regrets and there were words that had been left unsaid. And I'm pretty sure if they're anything like us, when relationships are strained, when there are different perspectives and opinions, like there was in the church in Corinth, what we can be so what can be so so challenging is to number one, give recognition where recognition is due, see the good in the other, and to do the most basic, difficult thing to go up to someone and show them the kindness of greeting them and not avoiding them. About four years ago, I met with an, an individual and I thought that the meeting went well. I really did, but it did not apparently. And this person was very angry, very angry. And, and Jason Malone um, met with the two of us early before church the following Sunday. A few days later, we actually met down the hall in the principal's office. <laughs> and I was pretty frustrated as well by this point. Then afterwards, we had church. And there was communion that Sunday, even better. And I remember Jason saying, if anyone has any disagreement with someone else in the room this morning, let's make sure we deal with that before partaking in communion. And my feet got really heavy. Standing up was like pulling my legs out of bed when you really don't want to. But I just about managed to get over to this person. We, we chatted through some of the situation. Greeting, not avoiding. Giving recognition to someone else's contribution or opinion can be the hardest thing, the strongest thing. You know, back when we, at Easter, we, 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 we asked the church, who, who is one person in your life that maybe the Lord is um, calling you to um, invite to Easter? Or who is one person in your life that the Lord is particularly putting on your heart to share Christ um, with and so we ask once again church who, who's one person who's one person in this coming week that you can recognize maybe there's somebody that you have not been giving recognition to who is that one person or maybe there is someone that you have been avoiding maybe there's somebody that you've been uh walking away from or running away from and and, and who's that one person that you this week need to do that most basic difficult thing and greet them in verse 21 paul picks up the pen literally up until this point it's been a scribe writing what paul is being dictating but at the end paul wants to make sure it's it's, it's clear that this is coming from him Verse 21, he writes, I, Paul, writing, write this greeting with my own hand. Then he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This is how Paul ends his letter. He says, our Lord, come, Maranatha, in longing for the day of Christ's return. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. These are all standard statements for him to close out his letter with. But why end with, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's the first thing he writes when he takes up the pen. When Paul says, let him be a curse, he, he's hearkening back to Old Testament terminology that speaks to a line of decomarkation that determined who was in the believing community and who was not. And so Paul is closing out this long letter addressing so many issues within the life of the church by drawing the starting line. He's saying to move forward, start 
here. What will keep you, what will bind you, is not your love for one another, because sometimes that will fade. It's not your agreement or everything on everything I've said. I already know you don't agree with all of that, but start here. Start with your love for the Lord. Run together from that line. And this letter was read out, and as this letter was read out for the first time, the church in Corinth is reminded to begin the conversation by coming around their mutual love of Jesus. Because loving Jesus, church, is so, so core to who we are. Our affection for Christ is so, so core to who we are. Yes, what we believe matters. Yes, we have entire letters correcting doctrine. We just spent nine months through looking all kinds of controversy. But with a love for Jesus is where we need to begin. Or just part do you love him? Or just part does your heart stir with affection for him? It's where we begin. It's where we begin conversations in our marriages, conversations in our conflicts, conversations over controversy, conversations with those that make us bristle. When we feel pitted against somebody else, when we feel someone else's success might diminish our own, when we feel slighted or overlooked or overshadowed, we begin with our love for Jesus. We center ourselves on our love for Jesus because in loving Jesus, we realize we've been compelled by the way he lived, not just what he did. In fact, when we love Jesus, it's a sure sign that we've fallen in love with the way of love itself. And Jesus proved that the way of love goes hand in hand with the way of love, the way of a crucified king who came and did not insist on his own way, who did not envy or boast, who was patient and who was kind, and who proved through the power of the cross when he defeated our sin and granted us forgiveness that there never has been a contradiction between strength and love and that there never will be. Church, there is no contradiction between strength and kindness. There is no contradiction between strength and patience. There is absolutely no contradiction between strength and enduring love. Church, it is bitterness and envy and unforgiveness that are formed in weakness, but love in the face of bullies and betrayal takes grit and digging deep and standing strong. And if you today are in the hardest battle, the hardest battle to love, I hope it is Jesus that you look to. Because in looking to Jesus, he will not only strengthen you, he will also show you the way. Let's pray. God, we look to the cross. And God, we don't only see there what you did, but we see the way that you did it. God, you were a God who came in flesh and you loved well. You loved those around us. You loved those that were hard to love. God, you loved your enemies. You gave your life on the cross for those that were rebelling from you. God, I pray, God, that we would live out and demonstrate and show the same kind of love. God, I pray, God, that you would strengthen us in our love, strengthen us in our kindness, strengthen us in our patience, strengthen us in endurance. God, give us your kind of love for those that are around us and may the world see the transformation, the change in our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen.